Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you for coming to this panel, Me Too in the Media, Survivors, Believability, and Emotional Labor. My name is Sarah Benet Weiser. I am a professor at the Annenberg School. I'm going to see if we can get them to chatter to go down. Um, <laughs> I'm a professor at the Annenberg School at the University of Pennsylvania in the United States, but I was here at LSC for several years. Um, and I'm going to introduce our panel and then pose some questions for all of us and have a discussion, a conversation for about 45 minutes. And then we would like to open it up for questions from you all in the audience. We also have um, Rowena, who is on, going to be online, and so we will ask questions, um, you can ask questions of her as well. Uh, so let me just go ahead and introduce um, uh, the panelists. Um, to my left here is Catherine Claire Higgins. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania, and my esteemed co-author for our book, Believability. Uh, she earned her PhD here at the LSE and the Department of Media and Communication in 2022. Um, and she also um, earned a master's degree in media and communication in 2015. Her research and writing, aside from the, the co-authored book, are published in journalism, television and new media, feminist media studies, and visual uh, communication. Next to Kat, we have Lucia Osborne Crowley. She is a trained lawyer, journalist, and the author of three books, I Choose Elena, My Body Keeps Your Secrets, which won a Somerset Mom Award, and the forthcoming Witness, The Trial of the Century, a behind-the-scenes account of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. She has appeared as an expert journalist on the Maxwell and Prince Andrew cases on BBC News, Sky News, LBC News and BBC Radio. Her writing has appeared in The Independent, ABC News, The Guardian, The Sunday Times, GQ, and Granta. Uh, next to Lucia is Winnie Lee, who is an author, activist, and a PhD candidate here at the LSE in the Department of Media and Communications. And her research is on how rape survivors engage with the media as a form of activism which is sort of generally the topic for the day, right? Her latest novel, Complicit, um, is, was inspired by her experience in the film industry, was a New York Times editor's pick, and was recently shortlisted by the Royal Society of Literature's Encore Award for Outstanding Second Novel. Her debut novel, Dark Chapter, won The Guardian's Not the Booker Prize and was translated into 10 languages. She holds an honorary doctorate from the National University of Ireland in recognition of her writing and activism. Do we have Rowena online? There she is. Uh, Rowena uh, is, is here. <laughs> um, above us, Rowena Chu um, was a former assistant to Harvey Weinstein whose story appeared in the New York Times investigation, the best-selling book She Said, and its film adaptation. After leaving the film industry, she worked for Accenture, McKinsey, 
PricewaterhouseCoopers, and the World Bank. Rowena holds an MA from Oxford, an MSc in International Management from the University of London, and an MBA from the London Business School. She is currently working on a memoir and a screenplay about her experiences in the film industry. So as you can see, an, an incredibly esteemed panel um, with lots of um, stories, um, activism, and advice for all of us who live in this world where sexual violence happens so frequently. So um, today we are going to be exploring what it means to be a survivor, what it means to use the media um, as a survivor, what it means to be believed or not believed. Um, some quick housekeeping um, uh, before we start for those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSC Festival. Um, I probably don't need to say this, but if you could please put your phones on silent so that we don't have a disruption. The event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, um, you know, uh, subject to technical difficulties that never, ever happen. Um, so hopefully they won't happen this time and we can do it as a podcast. Uh, after the, uh, we talk to the panel, we will have, again, questions um, that you can put your questions to each of them, to all of them. Um, just raise your hand in the audience. For the online audience, you can submit your questions via the Q&A feature. Um, and um, when you do so, please include your name and affiliation, and then they will relay those questions to me. Okay, so on with our conversation. I'm just going to say a few minutes, uh, say a few things um, uh, about the recent book that I co-authored with Kat Higgins called Believability, Sexual Violence, Media, and the Politics of Doubt. Um, what we did in that book is we noticed, well, why we wrote the book is we noticed that in the sort of post-initial Me Too moment, um, there was a kind of media heightened visibility about stories of sexual assault, stories of sexual violence, survivors, and, who, and believability. And so we were really interested in thinking about why this, the believability of women in the context of sexual violence, why this became an object of fascination, of contention, and cultural anxiety. And so we also thought that even though, and, and it would be great to hear from you, Lucia, about this, even though we are indebted to decades of feminist legal work on believability in the context of sexual violence, we also thought that it made sense at this moment to look to culture, to look to the media as a broad landscape to see how these narratives are being formed, how they are being challenged, what things, uh, you know, are they redemption stories, are they stories of futility, and so on. So we turn to the media, and in the media we really looked at, we really kind of defined believability in two different ways, and I think all of us will be talking about those um, uh, those definitions of believability. One is who one is, whether or not you will be believed. What is the subjectivity of a victim of sexual violence? Who one is? And the other one is how one can convince someone that they are a victim. Performance. So we kind of we think about believability as the entwining of both subjectivity and performance. It is who one is, and how convincing are they, right? And that, that, and that has to do with lines of race, of 
gender, of sexuality, of class. Um, and so we kind of look through the, a broader media context to see how this believability was, was enacted, performed, challenged, and so on. So with that, that's kind of the broad context for this conversation. Um, uh, I wanted to ask um, each of the panelists a question, and then Kat and I um, will also respond. Rowena, is it okay if I ask you first? Okay, great. Okay, great. So you have given hundreds of media interviews about your assault by Harvey Weinstein. You're currently writing a memoir about it. You had to pivot your own career away from film um, because of this, because of this assault, because of the context of this, um, and the Weinstein investigation, and everything that, that has happened since. Obviously, you know, this has been a big disruption in your life, a, a traumatic event. How have you drawn on your own professional skills in handling this at this moment, especially when it has such incredible cultural, global, and media visibility? I think it's very interesting, uh, your list of what you said about what makes us survive the people. Um, I uh, come to the YouTube movement and the Wednesday story uh, with, I suppose, a bit of a different angle. Uh, almost as soon as I had gone public with my story, the New York Times published an op ed which was entitled, How He Wants Me Told Me He Likes Chinese Girls. So I think that immediately catapulted me into a specific spotlight about race. Now, my comments about race are, I think that. It is much easier for somebody of colour who can say they have a degree from Oxford, who can say they work for Sanchez Press, who Cooper's in the world where as you just have, and who has an accent from the West in order to be believable. Is this fair? It is absolutely not fair. So I've worked a lot with immigrant groups who have authentic and verifiable stories of sexual assault, and they cannot get media attention. They cannot get any attention. They cannot get legal attention. They can't get media attention. So I think this issue of what makes a survivor believable, does it have anything to do with their colour? Does it have anything to do with their professional background, as indeed your question addresses? Um, and a myriad of other things, um, accent, appearance, uh, you know, sort of comfort in front of testifying uh, on, a, on a maybe legal basis or a public basis. This, of course, has a lot to do with whether or not the story is believable. And this is a difficult uh, thing to work with. It's a difficult thing to convey. It's a difficult thing to work with. And I think those of us that do have a professional background and therefore have come to this story, uh, their own uh, assault stories, uh, being able to use their professional skills and map it to the telling of their sort of stories. I think that's actually an uncomfortable place to sit. Um, it creates some sort of... Um, additional guilt, I would almost say, in the sense that I know I have a certain amount of privilege in speaking about my story and being believed, not to mention that my assailant was someone famous. I mustn't forget that point also. That has given my story, once it did come out, a greater credibility. And I think there's also guilt associated with that. So I think this issue is your question, and I think this issue is incredibly complex. Do you want to respond to that at all? No, I think it, it echoes a lot of what we talk about in the book in terms of the tension between the violence of being kept silent and having your story be erased versus the violence of what can happen even after silence ends. And what we found looking at a lot of these, because the cases we look at in the book are mostly cases involving quite high-profile accused men. So the kind of case that Rowena is talking about. But what we see there is that visibility 
is never enough to guarantee believability for a subject who's been assaulted. It's always, um, it's always a much more complex struggle of trying to attract the kinds of recognition that can establish you as someone, not only someone who's been harmed, but someone who's been harmed in a way that they did not deserve. And for certain types of subjects, they've, they've been constructed historically in a way that makes that kind of, um, the sort of moral purity that we, we ask of victims harder for them to access. And so even when their stories are able to kind of achieve national attention, international attention, the response can often be punitive. They can be disbelieved in a really violent way um, so it's, there's a tension there between just getting the story out and then what happens once the story has been told, I think. Yeah, I think, Rowena, you're completely right. It is so complex, and it has to do with all these different vectors mm -hmm. of, of race, of class, of gender, um, but it also isn't a guarantee no matter what. It has to do with privilege and so on. Um, you know, we talk a lot about in the book about how... Uh, when women are believed, when they make um, an accusation of sexual violence, it's often, not always, but it's often uh, white women who accuse men of color, right? That that has a longer historical narrative that then is, you know, makes someone seem more believable than others, which is why we think that believability is a really um, productive way to kind of, you know, think through some of these issues. Um, so, so, Winnie, I'm going to turn to you now. You have... Um, written two novels that address sexual violence. Um, one very specifically oops, implicit in the, in, um, within the context of the film industry. Um, and your PhD research also focuses on the experiences of survivors who share their stories through the media. So a very specific way of, of articulating one's survivorship and what it means to be a survivor. So why the media? Why, why choose artistic or creative approaches to speaking out rather than other avenues? Yeah, I think it goes back to your question um, that you asked Rowena about drawing upon your, your professional skills. Um, so I was 29 when I was um, assaulted and raped by a stranger walking through a park. Um, it's quite violent. Uh, and it was in the news media within hours of the assault happening because the police were doing a call out um, to people that may have witnessed um, anything. Um, so it was a very kind of jarring entry into this world. And prior to that, I was working as a film producer. And I'd always wanted to be a writer. So, you know, I grew up and I'd always loved storytelling, whether in written form or visual form. Um, and then this thing happened in my life and completely disrupted my life, as it does for any survivor or victim. And then I kind of was ha had to sort of pick up the pieces and, and recover and try to figure out on one level, you know, how do I rebuild a life in post-trauma, but then how do I rebuild my career post-trauma? Because I was working in film, and then suddenly PTSD, you know, does something to you, and you're not really capable necessarily of performing a really demanding job like being a film producer. So my career ended kind of automatically as a film producer, and that, there's always been a huge sense of loss about that. Um, but I always, you know, still wanted to tell stories in some way. So for me, you know, I went through five and a half years of recovery before I realized, okay, I'm at a point now where I can address this through writing. And as somebody who's always been a writer, of course I was going to use writing to address this thing that happened to me, which pretty much permanently caused, uh, changed the trajectory of my life and which I knew was also affecting so many other people out there. Um, so the creative outlet was always kind of an important form of self-expression for me. 
Um, but then as I became more involved in survivor work and activist work, I just realized there's many, many other survivors out there who are also artistically talented and who are also drawing upon their own skills in theater and in dance and you know, visual arts, um, acting, music, um, as ways to kind of try to address this trauma. Um, so I did found something called Clear Lines. It's a festival that I founded about, uh, I think, like seven years ago, um, eight years ago, um, which was meant to showcase a lot of art that was being created by other survivors around this issue. And then for me, yeah, I suppose if I just wanted to be a public speaker, I could be talking about my, my rape over and over again in recovery. But what was most productive for me and kind of gelled most with my own desires creatively was to actually use the creative out outlet um, and to kind of write fiction about this. Um, so, uh, yeah, and that was the way I felt like I could kind of move forward in my career, which had been disrupted, um, and actually really embrace wanting to be a writer. Um, so I kind of threw myself into writing Dark Chapter, and then eventually I wrote Complicit. And I think for me, fiction allows... Um, you know, that additional space where a reader can kind of insert themselves into a narrative. So if something's presented as news or as the truth, like this is, this is Rowena's story or this is Winnie's story of what happened. Um, but then if you're reading fiction, I mean, the amazing thing about the arts is that, you know, it enables the reader or the viewer to kind of insert themselves into the narrative and kind of, kind of attach or draw whatever they want emotionally from it. So that kind of additional area of freedom was something I enjoyed in, in writing fiction. Um, and I still enjoy it and kind of moving forwards yeah, I'd like to continue being a novelist because I think, you know, the other thing about trauma is it, it makes you reassess the important things in your life. And I realize, actually, I don't want to have a boss anymore, right? And I, I, you know, there's so many people that work day jobs, but they really want to be a writer. So I just kind of realized, well, I might as well just do that now. I write those books I've always wanted to write. Great. Um, thanks. Um, it, it, I, I do think that there's a certain... Uh, difference in, in artistic or creative expression of things like trauma and sexual violence and survivorship um, than what have been more traditional or conventional um, channels. And with that, I'm going to turn to Lucia, who is a lawyer and a journalist, but not a conventional one, um, um, for which we are all grateful. Um, you have a law degree, you're a journalist covering uh, Me Too issues, you are a survivor, you have written two memoirs about the impact of sexual violence in your life. Um, your next book is on the Maxwell case um, coming out next year. And so this question I think follows really nicely from Winnie's articulation of the creative and artistic expression. Why did you choose the law um, as a way to really challenge, interrogate, push back, change the context of sexual violence. Yeah, thank you. I, I had so many thoughts going through my head as, as you all, all of you were speaking um, and as you, when you were speaking about these kind of decisions we make about how we process these things. Um, and, you know, I've just spent, recently spent a month at an inpatient trauma rehab facility and one of the things they talk about there a lot is that we have to better understand trauma as a disruption and interruption in our lives. We've, you know, we've all kind of had that experience. Um, and so w what happened in my life was um, a very strange type of disruption, which was that I was um, violently sexually assaulted when I was a teenager, uh, but I didn't tell anybody about it for 10 years. So I tried to erase the interruption. Um, that was my primary goal, was to deny the fact that this disruption had happened to my nervous system and, and my life. Um, and I just, I just kind of carried on um, 
or at least I tried to. I was a semi-professional gymnast at the time, um, but the injuries I had from, from that uh, ended my gymnastics career, which I then tried not to think about for 10 years. Um, and then I trained as a journalist and I trained as a lawyer. And as a journalist, you're told never to insert yourself into the story. And I mean, I think there's a lot of great journalists challenging this now. Um, I think there's a lot of debate to be had about that. But you know, if you speak to someone from the old guard, they'll tell you never to insert yourself into the story. So when I finally disclosed my assault, I was 25, so it was 10 years later, um, I finally got access to all this treatment um, and medical help and therapy, and I pretended in these appointments that I was working as a journalist because I was a sexual violence reporter. I was spending every day in court, you know, working on sexual violence, I, but I couldn't acknowledge that it had happened to me. So when I did acknowledge that, I pretended that I was in my profession. I pretended that I was not at a medical appointment about my own internal injuries. I pretended that I was, and I would make notes as if I was writing about somebody else because that's what I'd been trained to do. Um, and that's what we're trained to do as lawyers as well. So I'd pretend I was writing about a client or you know, advocating for a client because I'd never been able to advocate for myself. Um, so then I ended up publishing this memoir, which is the last thing I ever thought I'd do because it's all about me. And I've always kind of erased myself from every story, um, partly as a result of trauma and partly as a result of the professions that I've been in. Um, and that felt to me um, like the best way to kind of express my story in that first memoir because I wanted the truth to be out there, I wanted to finally be able to speak about it, and I wanted that interruption to be acknowledged. And then what that led to, because, going back to our conversation, because I am very privileged and was believed for a number of reasons. I'm a white, middle-class woman, despite the fact that it was a 10-year-old allegation and I had destroyed all the evidence intentionally, you know, I was believed and, that, and I had the huge privilege of being believed when I first reported this um, for all the reasons we've discussed. And so then that led me into thinking what can my other professions do to aid how I'm now thinking about sexual violence? How can journalism and law help us to understand just how ubiquitous the, this is? and this kind of really, really complex issue of believability. Um, and the law, I think, um, one of the things, because we're all here talking about the media, you know, we have, we're having a big media conversation, thanks to people like Rowena, since 2017. Um, in, in, the, in the public domain, we're having this conversation, and, and yet the legal system, in the legal system, things are actually getting worse, not better. So it, we might think that because our stories are being told, that the, the criminal justice system is getting better at dealing with sexual violence. It's not. If you look at every single statistic to do with um, arrest, charge, trial, conviction, um, complaints, uh, believability, credibility. You know, I watched four Ghislaine Maxwell and Jeffrey Epstein victims be cross-examined in a way that I do not think the law should allow. Um, these are the kind of things which could really easily change. Um, so the legal system is really interesting to me now because I know that so many people assume that it's getting better and if you actually dig into the statistics, it's getting much, much worse for victims. So it, it's a place where I want to focus my energy and kind of make, make clear to the public conversation what's actually happening in our courtrooms to victims and, and why the 
why it is so hard as a victim survivor um, to pursue any kind of criminal justice. And then I, I think journalism is a good way to kind of report on the legal system and, and get us and, and make that conversation a bit wider because we can't all be in the courtroom, you know, and that's why we need legal reporters in there to kind of get the message out that this is how this is how victims are being treated on the stand. And it's it's abhorrent. It's really it's really, really troubling and it could be changed so easily and it's continuing to mean that the victims can't report. Yeah, I think it's so... That's so interesting what you just said. Also, there's this sort of presupposition that somehow the court, wherever it is, Mm -hmm. and whatever political geographic space it is, that the court of law is somehow pristine, Mm -hmm. right? That it is somehow a space where objectivity and rationality and neutrality sort of reign, right? But we all know that cultural narratives, especially in cases of sexual assault and sexual violence, cultural narratives about gender, and if it's, if it's about a woman who is the victim of an assault, about women, um, find their way very squarely into the, in, the, in the courtroom. So it becomes questions about whether or not someone asked for it and whether or not even still, like you said, it's getting worse. You know, you'd think that we wouldn't still be asking what was she wearing, what, what did she do to deserve this, and yet that is still continuing. And so I think one of the things that I find remarkable about all of you and, and also about the, the media context in general is that those cultural narratives come from somewhere, right? They, don't, they also don't, aren't just produced in a vacuum. And one of the key places they come from is the media, how we report on people, how victims are framed in the media, what are our fictionalized accounts of sexual assault and rape. And so I think like when you said it's, it's, it could be so easy to change that, yeah. it, it could be easy, yes. <laughs> um, um, I think that it is possible to change it. Um, but I think that it needs that kind of change is um, multi-leveled and multi-dimensional. And, and one of the places where we can start is actually changing the narrative in the media. Um, and so um, I think that it's interesting to me that all three of you have talked about this in your answers to my questions about how the life that you had before um, an assault, the profession that you had before an assault changed, right? It, it, it was gone. You erased it, right? You couldn't be a producer anymore. You pivoted from um, um, the film industry. And so I think that that also tells us something about how deeply seated these cultural narratives are and how intractable they are to change, that you actually have to make that part of your life in some ways invisible. Um, so I want to pick up, and maybe Rowena, we could come back to you on this. Um, I want to pick up also on something that you said, Lucia, about it's hard. It is hard to come forward. It is hard to write a novel. It is hard to, um, even with privilege, it is hard um, to tell these stories. Um, And what that makes me think, and what we have also written about in Believability, is that that the, the hard work that it is is a form of labor. Right, it is it is a form of labor for a a um, public to be a public survivor to tell that story over and over again to be questioned about it over and over again even if you are believed you know um, and so 
I guess, Rowena, you, you, start, you kind of um, touched on this in your initial answer, but how conscious were you of this as a form of, of labor? And, and also, to your very important point about privilege and intersectionality, how did your own cultural position or identity affect the sort of labor of appearing believable, the work of appearing believable? I think I have to start by saying that uh, when I broke my story in, when I finally broke my story in October 2019, which is a different date from when the Me Too movement ignited, uh, because I want to uh, remind the audience of the fact that it did take me two years to decide to even speak out in the first place. Um, and that's significant, I think. Uh, when I did break my story, I actually thought very naively it'll be this 50 moments of fame on the NBC Today show, uh, you know, that I was really going to sit with Jodie Cantor and Megan Tui and Ashley Judd to lend uh, support to the book release on that day. And that that would be it. And I, didn't, I had no idea of the disruption to my life or the sense of what it meant to be a public figure about something so difficult and so controversial. And of course, every step of the movement uh, has been um, challenging and surprising. And uh, really, I once described it as a roller coaster that's still being built while you're sitting on it. And that's frankly pretty much how it is. Um, in terms of, um, I'm sorry, could you repeat the second part of your question? Because I didn't want to miss the nuance about um, intersectionality and how that affects my. Yeah, like how does your own cultural position, I mean, you, you have started talking about this, how your own cultural position um, affected the work of appearing believable. You know, you, it, it took, you know, you, you, it was two years before you, you could go on there uh, to the media. And did you think that your cultural identity or your, or your position um, affected whether or not you were believed once you did come forward? I think the issue of believability, although we wouldn't be sitting here, is, is uh, you know, so complex and so, so nuanced, as I said in my first answer. I think, it, I think your question is interesting because it's sort of predicated on the belief that I believe I'm believable. It's th that's an interesting sort of thought. Um, I think that my, ex my experience with the Weinstein case and the Me Too movement has been, uh, has been such a, it's been so complex, even to me myself, that it depends on the day that you ask me. I really struggle with this question about believability because for me particularly, without the New York Times coming in and the NBC Today show inviting me to speak about She Said and all of the structure of the media and the attention and the spotlight that's not due to Romina Chu, that's due to Harvey Weinstein. I think that is incredibly complex because as one of the other panelists says, it makes us visible but it doesn't necessarily make us believable. And I think it took me a long time to understand this nuance. Um, one of the reasons why I struggle with this issue of am I believable is without that framework, without the huge media circus around the Weinstein survivors, how believable are we really? Because Zelda Perkins and I spent 20 years before the New York Times broke the story, attempting to persuade various parties be they senior people within Miramax, be they Miramax board members, be they Bob Weinstein, be they the legal industry, trying to convince people of the veracity of our story. And frankly, pretty much nobody believed us. By the way, including our own lawyers that represented us against Harvey. They thought we were a couple of young girls on the make. They did not necessarily think that my sexual assault story was true.
So I think it's really important not to confuse visibility and believability. We as Weinstein survivors are incredibly visible. Are we actually believable? I'm not sure that we even are, even in this day and age. Um, you know, we talked a lot about how um, Lucia talked about how the legal industry hasn't really changed for the better. It's almost changed for the worse. And so I think my recent experience as a Californian of watching Jen Newsom, who is the first partner of California, go up and give her testimony and frankly, not really believe, be believed, especially by the, at least by the legal system, or at least that is the, the way that the trial um, has to run under the, the way that it currently works. You know, they have to ask her incredibly challenging questions about, you know, what she's wearing, what her relationship with Harvey was afterwards, whether or not they exchanged friendly emails, all this kind of stuff. They're really uh, targeting someone that is actually already a very believable person and a very visible person. Um, and yet her story was really ground down. What does what message does that give other survivors who uh, want to come out with their very true and their very authentic and their very real stories? It tells them actually, if you if you step out with this story, you're you're completely not going to be believed. Because even people who are used to public speaking, who are already in the spotlight, like the Wednesday survivors, even people who have a political career like Jen Newsom, are going to really struggle to tell their stories in this space. The reason why I don't feel believed is. Uh, well, I mean, uh, we, Zelda Perkins and I had tried many forms of legal, um, uh, of, you know, proving our stories in the legal space, which quite rightly, uh, we at least started by believing that this is a harbinger of justice. Uh, we can't, we can't get anywhere in the legal space. In the media space, I believe that apology is often made for Weinstein victims. For example, uh, I'm often described in the press from both the tabloid press to the very serious press, like the Times, I'm often described as Romina Chu, married mother of four, or it's always commented that uh, I'm a professional woman, or I have a functioning family, or something like that, which makes me feel uh, my truth isn't believed in its own right. It is often seen as I am more believable if I am a wife or a mother, that's the tabloids. I'm more believable if I'm a professional, if I have a background as a management consultant, if I have a degree from a good university. These things are often mentioned as a way of validating who I am as a person. My truth cannot stand on its own. Yeah, I think that is such a crucial, crucial point that you made, um, all of them, but also that whether or not we are believable to ourselves, mm -hmm. right? That this is not just something that we're trying to convince others, but, you know, also to ourselves. I didn't know if you wanted to comment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, Rowena, you've touched on something really interesting and important here, which is that when we talk about the truth of sexual violence, we're talking about multiple different types of truth at the same time. So there's the truth of the event, but there's also the truth of this as a form of violence that people need to be able to recognize as violent. And then there's also the truth of this as a kind of endemic problem in our society that a, an enormous proportion of people will experience in their lifetime that has something to tell us about our institutions and about patriarchy. And even when we can establish a kind of official recognition of one aspect of the truth of a sexual assault, for example, through a conviction, there's all these spaces of retreat where you can continue to deny. You can maybe accept that the event happened, but not believe that it was violent, or accept that it was both a real event and that it was violent, but not that it has anything to tell us about society that we need to be paying attention to. So because of these multiple um, spaces of retreat, and I think this is something that Rowena has touched on, 
the labor of becoming believable as a survivor is never ending. It's not something you work for, work for, work for, and then get and can keep. It's something that you have to work for forever because doubt can always be reinserted into your narrative. And what I'm sure, and this is probably something we'll speak more about, but it only takes the tiniest amount of doubt to kind of corrupt the sort of tenuous believability that a survivor is able to establish. Yeah, um, I think we should probably address, you know, when you mentioned doubt and how it can creep in, like, let's address those tropes, right, the stereotypes that people always say is, you know, why does a woman scream rape, as people say, or why does a woman decide to share her story? There's always going to be men that say, oh, she's doing it for fame, you know, uh, she's doing it for money, right? And, I mean, I I would like to know how you can actually make money (laughs) once you come forward with your story as a rape survivor because nobody wants to be famous for having been raped, right? Um, Nobody, you know, there are other ways to make money that don't involve you outing yourself as a sexual violence survivor or a victim, right? So I think, you know, I I don't know where these deeply-seated tropes come from, but they, you know, they're in the Bible, they're in Greek mythology, right? I mean, you look at the story of Theseus and his son and, you know, his, his wife, Phaedra, accused his son, his other wife, second wife, Phaedra, accused his son of, of raping her because, you know, Theseus' son wasn't paying her enough attention, and then the son died, right? So it ends up, it's like, it's the evil woman that is using rape as an excuse for attention or to get back as a form of vengeance, right? And that, of course, is used all the time when we come, when we come to stories of Weinstein or Cosby. It's like a women that were angry that they didn't get their moment, uh, they didn't get their, their career that was promised to them, and they're going to accuse men, right? So... I think we really need to look at those kinds of quite patriarchal assumptions about women. Um, and then so for me, I mean, the flip side, obviously, as, as a victim, as a survivor, of course you know that's the truth. I mean, this thing happened to you. It, it fundamentally changed the course of your life. And yet people are always going to ask, did it really happen? Like, it, I mean, it's the, the gap between the reality of the impact on your life and what other people are saying is ridiculous. Um, I wrote Dark Chapter, and then I did a lot of media interviews about it, um, and I did a Sky, uh, like a 10-minute Sky interview, which you can find on YouTube if you want. And, and basically, I was talking about Dark Chapter, but also my experience of, of um, survivorhood. And in the comments below the chat, some guy said, I think she's just making up the story of her rape to sell her book, right? And I just, I mean, whatever. Like, I saw it later on. And by that point, I was, like, inured enough to dealing with the media, which is a thing to talk about. At the beginning, you're quite green, and then eventually, if you keep on engaging with the media as a survivor, you become used to the things that are said, right? Um, But I remember reading that and being like, I mean... So like, I'm literally is this guy like saying oh, I'm making up my rape just to be able to sell my book and, and that's so backwards and yet and it speaks so much to kind of these patriarchal assumptions that really erase the trauma that you know it serve as a form of erasure of, of the actual impact that it has on your life which is deeply unfair um, yet, and it's always a work of labor to have to continually be speaking out to try to prove those assumptions wrong. Yeah, oh, did you want to? Yeah. I just, sorry, do you mind? No, no, no. I just wanted to say, I mean, Winnie and I were talking about this earlier. These kind of cultural narratives about women coming forward about sexual violence in order to get attention or to get money. Again, like, I'd love for someone to tell me how that works. Um, and, and also, this is not the kind of attention that, that, that anybody wants, you know, and, and it's such a strong cultural narrative. And I think its purpose is... And I think I write a lot about this in, in the Ghislaine Maxwell book. Its purpose is that, so that we can collectively deny as a society how endemic this is mm-hmm. and, and, and the intense impact it has on our lives. So we just need something to hold on to, to try and insert doubt into these stories. 
And the Maxwell trial was a really good example of this, and this is why I chose it, because there was so much evidence before that federal trial started that the four victims who testified were victims of Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. So Jeffrey himself had been charged. Um, he obviously never went to trial. Um, but there was so much evidence. Also, all of these women had had gone through a terrible legal process with the Jeffrey Epstein Victims' Compensation Fund, where they had to prove every single thing that happened to them um, in what was an awful, awful process for survivors. Um, and they were all, all four of them were successful in that process. So they had already been determined by the law, which, as you say, you know, we like to think of as this you know, this, this area where, where the truth lives, they'd already been determined by the law to be victims. Mm -hmm. the, these, these events had... To, had uh, the legal system had said these things happened. So then we had a federal trial where the defence had to find a way to doubt that, even though the legal system had already confirmed it. And what they did was this moral purity argument mm -hmm. and finding a way to insert doubt wherever they could and what they did was constantly use these arguments about moral purity to try and undermine these victims who had already been validated by the legal system. And it was really shocking. And I, and I say that quite meaningfully because I'm not shocked by many things anymore, you know, ha having reported on this for the last 10 years. But it really was shocking to see how hard they tried to impugn the moral character of these women because they knew that that cultural narrative um, would kind of would 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 spread and and one I'll I'll only use one example but for example one of the victims um, was given a pair of cowboy boots by Ghislaine Maxwell and we heard a lot at trial about um, the research around grooming and and child sexual abuse and how victims will be chosen because there is a need that is not being met in their own lives. Um, so these girls often um, had, came from single-parent households, didn't, couldn't pay the rent, um, couldn't, definitely couldn't afford $350 cowboy boots. And so she was bought these boots, and then the defence brought them in 30 years later to a Manhattan courtroom and showed the jury that they had scuff marks on them to, to indicate that she had worn them. And then they just said, well, I mean, why would you wear boots that were given to you by someone you were, that... that was, is an assailant. And I was just so shocked because a lot of the other reporters that I spoke to afterwards, there were only a few of us in the main courtroom, but there were lots of others in the overflow room um, who just came out and said to me, well, she's lying. She wore the boots. Yeah. And they, they really... And, and I, I did my own kind of quantitative analysis of the media that night, and every single major newspaper reported on the fact that she wore the boots... And it was a hugely important day of testimony, and that was the only thing that got reported. And it's just, again, this example of how doubt can be inserted at any time, even though this victim has proven again and again and again through really re-traumatising legal processes that these events happened. And yet still, the public and the legal system will grab onto anything to insert that doubt just so that they can keep trying to live in a world where this doesn't happen. And it, and it works in the opposite dynamic when you're talking about uh, the accused, right? So even a drop of doubt, she wore boots, you know, um, as reported in the media as making sure that then we all know that she was suspect, right? That she, there was something there that she wasn't quite t telling the truth. So uh, 
an accuser often must wholly overcome doubt um, in order for her story to be believed. I mean, completely. Whereas, as an accused, um, you know, there, it, it doesn't need to wholly overcome doubt at all. There just needs to be, you know, this idea that that there's, this, you know, the woman is lying, the woman is manipulative, right? That that obviously I didn't do it. I mean, look, she wore the boots, you know, and so so it's it's a really it's a really sort of terrifying dynamic. And I want to just make one more comment to what Rowena had said earlier, and then we'll have a final question, and then open it up for uh, questions from the audience. Um, and that is that. I, I think it's really important. I, I think we're so incredibly privileged to hear from the three of you um, about your stories and about how what it means to be to, to be in the media, to be a creative producer of media artifacts, to tell these stories. But it also, um, as Rowena said, you were in the New York Times years and years later because of a very famous man, right, who, who there were enough stories that that became the story. And to think that, I think we all need to just always remember that, that if we have a platform, it's important to use it. But so many people do not. And so many people don't have any of these resources or access to tell a story in the media or to write a novel or to, you know, to change careers. Right. Um, um, given how these, how the you know, kind of the cultural narratives about sexual violence and the actual practice of sexual violence works. So, so that's part of the you know, I, I, again, the sort of nuance of believability. Um, think about how many people you know don't come forward because they know very well that they will not be believed, and it is so traumatic to bring one story to to the media. So. Um, I guess a final question, and we'll just go around again. Rowena, we'll start with you. Um, this is a very big final question, so you don't have to answer all of it. But if you could think of one thing or a couple of things that you would change, either in terms of social attitudes, I mean, I think you know a, a, what's been clear from every from our discussion here is that social attitudes need to change about sexual violence, about, um, about the way in which it is a broad context um, that also is a disciplining context in terms of gender. But what would you change in terms of media practice or anything else related that you think might improve the experiences of survivors in the public in, or in dialogues, public dialogues or media dialogues around sexual violence? Yes, absolutely. I think that the one thing that I would entirely change, um, which is really uh, encompasses all of the work that I do with the Me Too movement, is this process of um, getting media and also public and public spaces to centre survivor voices. Because until we get to a stage where the legal system, the media system, and then just dialogue that happens in a public space frequently on social media, um, in any way centers survivor voices. We're not going to understand trauma. We're going to continue to have these rape myths perpetuate. And I touched upon that when we talked about this drop of doubt. And I want to return to that issue of the drop of doubt because I think it's very powerful. Um, I personally, through all of the things that we have done with the Weinstein case, for Zelda Perkins and I to attempt to prove my story, we have been up time and time again against this issue of the established frequently white male patriarchy um, 
is able to live in a world where their stories are assumed to be true until we have worked extremely hard to dismantle even a modicum of what they say. We, on the other hand, come as sexual assault survivors and our stories are assumed to be false until we overcome this enormous burden to uh, even prove one tiny part of what we're saying. Um, so it is a system that is entirely stacked against women. It is particularly stacked against women of colour. It is particularly stacked against women that come forward with a sexual assault story. So until we can reach a time, the thing that I would change, until we can reach a time when media, when the press, when the legal system, when folks on social media push back enough to centre survivor voices, we're not really going to have a true understanding of what it is like to be traumatised in this way, what it is like to live with this trauma for the rest of your life, what it is truly like to be a sexual assault survivor. I want to tie it back to uh, not just our legal and uh, policy motions against Weinstein, but also now, now that it's been a number of years that Harvey's been in jail, now uh, the work is really around dismantling the enablement, uh, all of the circles of privilege that he had around him. And I spoke earlier of his brother, the board, all the lawyers that worked for him, all the accountants that worked for him, everybody who worked to hide uh, Weinstein's to predation over decades. Um, and it is, of course, it's a long process that's incredibly demoralizing, that's taking place outside of the spotlight that the, that the initial Me Too movement focused on Harvey Weinstein. Uh, and I want to say, returning to this point that things are getting worse, not better, uh, it's a rather demoralizing point to end on, but to say that um, it's proved almost, even though we know that Harvey committed the crimes that he committed, even though he's in jail as a convicted rapist, it is really hard to bring any action against anyone that defended him or worked for him or negotiated our NDAs. And I think I return to that point that uh, the folks that we are working against, who are mainly white men of privilege, um, sit in a position where they their stories are automatically believed and our stories automatically aren't. We need to change that narrative. Agreed. Um, okay, we have just a couple of minutes. Do you either, both of you want to address that question um, about what to what is one thing we could change? Um, sure. Yeah, if okay. we could do that briefly so we could allow for a discussion with the audience. Yeah, um, well, the emotional labor is in the title of this talk, and just an awareness of the emotional labor that it takes for a survivor to share her trauma with the media over and over again, um, the huge cost in terms of her personal life, her professional life, um, her, her mental well-being, and then also tying that to the issue of money and monetization. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she is sharing her story. Like, Rowena has done literally thousands of media interviews, and it that so many, so much of her life has been taken up by that time-wise. Um, and yet, rarely do people think that survivors should be compensated for their time and their media skills when actually their stories and their trauma is making up the content of that clickbait headline, right? Or the, the victim who, or the, who, who wore the cowboy boots and now her is being doubted and her story is uh, is being replicated and her doubt is being replicated um, in those media headlines. Well, is she being compensated financially, right? In addition to the uh, kind of the psychological costs on her. So I think, you know, people don't really think about the finances of it, but at the end of the day, that's good media content and the people whose trauma is being used is not being, are not being compensated most of the time. That's a great point. Do you want to... Yeah, I will be very, very quick, I promise. Um, I, I would really, really like to reiterate Rowena's point about enablers, which is so, so important because, you know, I, we really, really do... The next bit of big bit of work for all of us who are concerned with this movement and the impact it has on our lives 
is to look at the people who knew and did nothing. Um, and both the media and the legal system have to get much, much better at identifying those people. Mm -hmm. And as Rowena said, not immediately believing when they say, oh, I didn't know. You know, they, they, they immediately get believed when they say, I wasn't enabling. Um, and we need to start questioning that because there needs to be more consequences for the, the whole system that enabled this to happen for, for decades before there was any um, justice at all. Um, and also, I'd just like to pick up on Rowena's other point earlier in terms of journalism. As a working journalist who is a survivor myself and who interviews survivors every single day, I think that comment about how journalists, and you know, I met reporters at the Maxwell trial who would do this, who, would in, who will insert that, that little subclause that redeems the survivor mm -hmm. somehow or, or apologises for them or... or you know, the, the mother of three or the wife or the, you know, adding some kind of moral element to the story. I think all journalists need to make sure that they're never doing that. And I think that the more we all check ourselves and make sure, and, you know, I hope I've never done this as, as a survivor myself, but I see it all the time. And, you know, every time that news article is then replicated, there's this, this little clause in there that, that makes us that makes clear that our society holds us to this gigantic burden. And I think that's one thing we could change and make sure that no journalists are doing that and make sure that newsrooms have a really strict policy on not doing that. Yeah, I think that would actually be an enormous change. So it's not she was only walking home, right? That, exactly. that, and, and so people who weren't only walking home somehow deserve it. So um, there's so much more we could talk about. We don't have um, that much time today, so I want to just now um, open it up for some questions. We already have one here in the front row. I think someone has a mic. Is, do you have a mic? Okay. And could you please give your name and affiliation? Hi, this is Carolina. I currently work at PwC, so it's all very relevant. But I used to work at Universal Pictures. I used to work at this giant studio. I loved all of your interventions. I wanted to bring up the topic of reputation in all of this, the idea that destroying a woman's reputation is used again and again as a way to preserve a man's reputation, and you see this beyond assault, just kind of in, in everyday life. And I will offer an anecdote um, from the film industry. So I was very junior at the time. I started in like 2014, and I worked for someone very, very, very senior, so kind of in a similar way to how Rowena would have done, um, who was a, an excellent boss, but I... <laughs> Uh, Universal received a lot of ex-Miramax uh, executives mm -hmm. <laughs> into Universal. A lot of people that had been with Harvey for like 20 years. And then they all moved over because uh, he wasn't doing all that well. And then Me Too happened. What was really tragic is sort of twofold. I knew a lot of the publicists that worked around stars. <laughs> there are actors that all of us love, that you love, that are disgusting human beings that mistreat women all the time. And they are protected by... PR teams, mm -hmm. and I say there's working reputation, I'm disgusted by it. Um, the second thing is that Harvey, it was acknowledged at the time that Harvey was only brought down because Miramax wasn't doing very well. Yeah. Because he just had like three or four bad years, and he was kind of already on the way down, and then suddenly people were like, how oh, well, you know, I guess, it's like, I guess now's the time, right? Like you're rolling down already, and then now they, they, they kick you. But if he hadn't, I guarantee you that that would not well, I, guarantee, I can't guarantee it, but I imagine that that might be very hard. And I know that because of the three or four actors that I can think of who are well-known in the industry to abuse women consistently, who are portrayed as lovable people on my Instagram posts, and 
just to throw a note on Amber Heard and Johnny Depp as a, a case in point of PR being used very aggressively to defend someone's reputation. Um, so I'd love your thoughts on it, and thanks. Uh, Are we going to take several questions? I think or? we'll take a, a, yeah. uh, several questions, um, and then we'll talk forever on that. <laughs> so, so we could also, we'll also be around afterwards um, if you want to talk. Are there, is there, yes, right there in the back. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Hi, I'm Hannah. I'm a student at LSE in the Gender Studies Department. Um, I think Rowena and Winnie both touched on the idea of entitlement and this feeling that individuals or this collective idea that individuals are entitled to roles in society and often powerful roles in society um, based on a very variety of factors, gender, race, class, ability, things like that. Um, and just how I was thinking a lot about how sexual violence uh, is particularly in the media really sort of butts up against that and really challenges that premise of entitlement for certain individuals and how, I don't know if you can speak to how sort of entitlement plays into the politics of believability and sexual violence in the media, if that makes sense. Sure. Do you want to go ahead and address these two questions while we... Um, I mean, I'll, I'll take the first question. I'm still kind of mulling over the second one. But, um, yeah, having worked in the film industry, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose another good example would be, would be Bill Cosby, who, you know, for decades, decades, um, had probably quite hundreds of victims, and he was protected because he was a lucrative asset within the industry, and it was only when he was much older and no longer as economically uh, much of a cash cow for the people that were benefiting from him that he was kind of brought down. And, and that's absolutely true. Like, if somebody's in power and if they're continuing to make money for other people, those other people will protect him. And that, that was, those are the enablers you were speaking about. Um, what I tried to do in Complicit in that novel and in general just around these issues is to think about, like, well, okay, but what is the cost of that, right? At, by protecting this one abuser, that's come at the cost of hundreds of women whose careers and lives were disrupted, in, in some ways ended, and, uh, and like... Again, that's the incredible injustice of this issue. And, and, and everything goes back to money, unfortunately, right? Um, so if I were to take a big, broad issue um, like sexual violence, I mean, I, I genuinely think if you, if you snapped your fingers, and I've said this in other public events, and snapped your fingers and there was equal distribution of wealth between genders, you wouldn't have as much sexual violence in this world, right? Because women would have more legal power and more economic power, and then you wouldn't have these positions of power where women are vulnerable, especially young women, um, and who feel that if they're going to succeed in an industry like film, they have to you know, cater to the demands for the desires of a much older, powerful man. Um, so yeah, I don't. That's kind of roughly what I would say about that. That you know, it's it's built into the system in which all of us work, not just the film industry. It's in academia. It's in you know, it's in the legal field. Um, it's in every single corporate environment where, if men are the ones that are in power, that's going to create a system where women, young women, can be very vulnerable, and obviously older women are vulnerable as well because they're outnumbered. Um, so yeah, that would be my take. Okay. <laughs> um, also, Rowena. 
I can only see you some of the time, so if you want, if you would like to answer, just start speaking, and I will shut up. Um, so um, yes, but, of course. Yeah. I mean, I, I I did want to address that issue of those two questions because actually I think they're really intertwined, especially in the Weinstein case. Uh, so first, I wanted to like make a few comments about reputation. Uh, I absolutely agree with the speaker that um, had Harvey's reputation not been slightly on a downward trajectory, uh, this would never have happened. And I, I want to say for the record that for me personally, having been so silenced in 98 and having gone away for so many decades, it absolute silence, so-called black hole. I thought that we would never emerge from that black hole and I actually never believed that Weinstein would be brought to justice. So I think the events of 2017 to the present day have been a huge surprise to me and to many other um, survivors. And I think that's because we believed that there would never come a time when our reputation would uh, be able to combat his reputation in a public space or that our access to entitlement, you know, I talked a little bit about my own privilege, but of course that's nothing compared to the level of privilege that Harvey has. So um, it's, it's interesting. I want to tie also back to Winnie's points about money and about access. Um, what's very interesting is you see all of these, traditionally, at least in the film industry, you saw a system where uh, men were largely entitled to uh, reputational, uh, you know, easy reputational gain, easy access to opportunity, easy access to make money, and women were less able to access those things. So you ended up with a situation where they were more believable than we were, but then in order for us to get that believability and entitlement and reputation, we would have had to be able to access this. I, as a young woman, would have been able to access the same level that Harvey could access. In other words, I could have continued my career. I could have become a famous movie producer, were it not that the access was taken away from me. So it's a sort of then becomes a vicious circle in the sense that not only does Harvey and other men of power already have access to these things that we cannot access ourselves, but we then can't gain that because our careers are derailed by something like sexual assault. So it's sort of two sides of the same coin, and then it becomes a perpetuating vicious circle. Because how do you break that circle? And how do you get more women up in positions of power with access to power and money and reputation and all the other good things that would mean that their stories are believed? Um, it is. It goes back to what Winnie said. If we created a fairer world, a fairer workplace where women were literally given equal access to these things, then there would be far less cases of sexual assault. But how do we actually arrive at that? Um, it's, a, it's a question of true, you know, women's equality has been discussed for, for half a century now. Um, and I get women who worked for feminist movements in the 50s and 60s who say, you know, I am honored to meet someone who's part of the Me Too movement. I'm also completely saddened and disillusioned that you even have to be doing this work. We felt we laid the groundwork for you back in the 50s and 60s. And we feel very much, you know, we're back at the bottom of the cliff. And so this question continues of is the Me Too movement going to be a part of building on that work of feminists from the 50s and 60s, where we're genuinely in a world of greater empowerment for women. Some days I would say yes, some days I would say no, because some days it feels like we're still back redoing the work that women had done in the 50s and 60s. But in other ways, we've come much further from them. So the question is, how can we move forward cliched as it is, for our daughter generation, our granddaughter generation, I'm constantly being asked this question. And I think that we're only going to be able to tell the impact of the Me Too movement once their generation comes into positions of power, privilege and reputation. Yeah, I think maybe um, 
I, I will just say one thing, and then, Rose, you have a question online, and so maybe we can then have Lucia answer that one. Also, just to Rowena's point, it, it, it would be, there would be lots of things, I think, that would be better about this world if, we, if culture actually moved forward in predictable ways. Right, but um, you know, I I never thought I'm. I live in the U S. I'm an American. I never thought in my lifetime that Roe v. Wade would be overturned, right? And the rights of reproductive rights would be taken away from from uh, women. And never thought I taught a I would teach a class with you know young women who didn't have those rights. And so we can see it going back, and you know that it's not a, a linear progression in any way, which is why I think we have to keep agitating and keep pushing um, and not accept an inevitable or an inevitability as if you know change can't happen. Rose, do you want to go ahead and read? She's right here. She, we're going to take I just want to make sure we don't um, uh, ignore the online people. So I've got two questions, if that's okay. Sure. So question one is from Rebecca Williams, and the question is, how can we address and change this concept of moral purity and an acceptable, in inverted commas, uh, victim? And the second one is from Liz Harvey, who's a novelist from Somerset in the UK. And the question is, how does the panel feel about writers who have not experienced sexual violence fictionalizing rape and its impact on an individual's life within a novel? Is it reckless to do so? That's a great question. Wow. Well, I'll start with the uh, first question. Um, these are both uh, very, very interesting questions. I think um, the question about reversing the moral purity aspect of this conversation um, is one of the biggest pieces of the work that we have to do. That's what um, I have been more and more convinced of the more of my life I spend doing this work um, because it is so powerful in, in undermining victims and undermining the access and the reputation of victims. And I think the way we do that is actually having a conversation about the moral purity conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is not being done enough right now. Um, I think we, again, you know, journalists will just accept these ideas presented by defence lawyers that are completely not backed up by research. In fact, you know, so uh, uh, one really good example of the moral purity argument is that um, we know as reporters, lawyers and researchers... Um, people who are groomed and sexually abused are m as children are much, 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 much more likely to develop things like substance abuse disorders as adults. So if you look at the science, uh, it's very, very clear. The, the correlation is very, very clear. However, any one of Jeffrey Epstein's victims who's had a substance abuse problem was attacked by that on, about that on moral grounds, even though, in fact, if you understand the truth of the issue... It actually corroborates the story rather than undermines the story. Um, but they were using it in this moral way. And I think you know, one of the defence lawyers actually said at one point, well, well, you're a drug addict, so how can we trust you? you know, it is that explicit that people are using the consequences of PTSD. So substance abuse is a very, you know, we know that it's a symptom of PTSD. And other things like mental health issues eating disorders, these are always used against victims in court, even though they're a direct symptom of what's happened to them. Um, and I think that we really need to 
uh, be really open about the fact that we are making moral assumptions um, that completely go against the science that we have. And we need to be, yeah, having, having a conversation about the, the conversation that's going on underneath all of these reports about moral purity. And um, I will let someone else answer the second question because I'm not a novelist. Well, I'm not a novelist either, um, but, but I'll, um, I'll I, at least it, it was a very interesting question, and, and I have a couple of thoughts. And one is it goes back, Lucia, to something that you said about this: we need to recognize sexual violence as a systemic mm-hmm. issue, as something that has become normalized in many different cultures and contexts and socio-geopolitical spaces, right? So. While I don't think that, I I think that the question is asking in some ways about a sort of authentic, uh, you know, authentic experience and and only, you know, whether or not, it's a very good question and whether or not that, it it could be a question of respect too, you know, whether or not only people who have experienced sexual violence are authorized to tell their stories because of that authenticity. I think that it's a very, it would be a very careful project, a very, you know, a, one that is not ever taken lightly. But one of the things I think about recognizing sexual violence as an issue is that we need to de-individualize it in some ways. It's, it is about individuals, it is mm-hmm. about individual bodies, but it's also a systemic harm. It's a systemic, it's a structural force. And more people that we get talking about it in productive ways, I think the, you know, the, the closer we get to actually changing those narratives. And there are lots of people, um, men and women, who are invested in changing the narrative that a woman is inherently manipulative, an inherent liar, um, and, and working for sexual justice. And so I think that um, that collectivity is where we should focus our efforts. And that could be someone who is writing something who has not experienced it him or herself. Yeah, if I can just pick up a little bit on the moral purity thing. I think that as well as having a very urgent conversation about why we demand moral purity and our misconceptions around um, survivors and their experiences, we also need to be thinking about why we direct so much suspicion at survivors in the first place. And it is around this sort of moral panic around false accusation, right? And this is kind of the defining feature of the backlash that we're witnessing in the sort of aftermath of the Me Too movement is this panic about something that we know statistically is incredibly rare. And yet we still have a narrative in society that it would be all, it would be worse, all things considered, for one innocent man to be falsely accused and then disbelieved and then punished, even though we know that of all the sexual assaults, at least in the United States, that occur, only 3% ever result in a conviction. So we're talking about an entirely hypothetical scenario here. But we treat it as if that would be so much worse than the demonstrable empirical reality, which is that 97% of sexual assaults happen with complete and total impunity. So why don't we have a similar panic around that reality that we can see before us that echoes, because it it is this fear that we might accidentally punish someone who was falsely accused. And yes, that would be bad, but the reality we have before us is terrible and we need to be taking it seriously. 
Um, can I answer the novelist question really quickly? Yes. Um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm all in favor of, of people who haven't lived through that experience trying to write about it um, authentically, but the, the problem is obviously throughout all of literature and storytelling human history, and you, you know, this, this, the issue of rape has been told oftentimes by people who aren't survivors in ways that play into that, uh, that moral panic about the false accusation. So, um, and then especially in crime fiction, Oftentimes, you know, the body of a dead, beautiful woman yeah. who's been raped is the opening scene of a crime novel, right? So um, there's certainly ways to write about sexual violence which um, offer humanity and subjectivity to the survivor. That's the kind of work I've done. Um, but I also do think that I, I don't want to say somebody has to be a survivor to write about it in the same way. And you, you're having this larger question in literature in general, like hashtag own voices. If somebody's not black, are they allowed to have the protagonist be black? Um, and I think as authors, you know, as writers, you know, the, the project of writing fiction is to create a character and and put your own humanity into understanding that character, right? Um, and sometimes people do it well and sometimes they don't and it's a learning process. Um, dark chapters written half from the point of view of the victim and half from the point of view of the perpetrator, right? Um, who was inspired by my real life perpetrator who was a 15 year old boy and you know, I'm not a rapist but I was like, okay, can I try to start do this creative project where half of it's about his point of view and trying to understand the humanity behind the choices he made. Like, why, how does somebody end up being a rapist at the age of 15 and trying to see him as a, as a three-dimensional individual? So I think as long as the author is trying to lend that humanity mm. to the characters that are involved in sexual violence, then that's a valid and, and a worthy kind of artistic endeavor. We have time for maybe one more question. Yeah, right here in the front. And then again, we'll be in the back over there afterwards for some for a few minutes. Um, hi, I just want to thank you for, you know, removing accounts and it's very educating. Um, I just wanted to ask, and I think that you kind of pointed out, like um, the fact that false accusations, they don't make up like more than like 5%, um, but people still, you know, there's a fact in front of them and they just don't want to believe in it. Uh, would you say, like, in the media and politics, there is that disbelief of the facts? And we can see them reflected through, you know, you've got the med police, they're sexist, you've got, you know, just the simple fact that 99% of rapists, of kid, you know, accused rapists, you know, they don't get convicted or even prosecuted. Um, would you say that like, that reflects the <coughs> disbelief of, like, the media to, like, actual facts? Because, like... If they actually believed it was a serious problem, like Prince Harry, who wouldn't be like the front page of the Sun or the Daily Mail, mm -hmm. no, that would be, you know, in the headlines or at least have a lot more time than. <coughs> okay. If that makes sense. Y yeah, I mean, well, I will just say one quick thing. You know, um, this the recent case with the Met Police, where they talked about. Um, um, What's his name? There's way too many cases with yeah, the Met I know. Police. Uh, where, where, with the Met Police, where they said, you know, <laughs> they were talking about um, the, the accusations, and they had someone from the Met Police say, oh, well, we get accusations all the time. I mean, you know, we just, as if these are something that is easy, easily, you know, brought to, um, the, you know, a kind of body of the state, right? Um, and so, so I think that it is, again, the, the, there's almost an industry mm -hmm. in false accusations, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So that you have, it's not just, 
you know, people online are saying she's, she's a liar or the armies of people who, who were Depp supporters who said that Amber Heard was making false accusations that she was a liar. Or, you know, so it's not just people online. It's the Met Police. It is the courtrooms. It's the lawyers. It's, you know, there's, again, there's this whole narrative that false accusations exist. And, um, and it's an industry. And I think one of the interesting things about men's rights activism, just as an example, is, is you know, several years ago, the main issue for men's rights activism was, were things like parental rights, custody, domestic violence, which are, you know, important issues. At the current moment, almost all of the focus is on false accusations mm -hmm. and how do we get rid of these women who are making all these false accusations. So it is an in, it's a system-wide mm -hmm. problem, and that's why I think it's so hard to tackle. Yeah, and I think just to build on Sarah's answer, thank you for that excellent question. I think that when we say that the media tends to disbelieve survivors, it's important to be specific about who and what we're talking about. And I think a point that we try to make in the book is that we have a media ecosystem and a set of media industries that thrive on controversy and attention. And controversy is something that drives attention. So there is actually a commercial imperative to keep these accusations as contentious as possible for as long as possible. There's, there's, it's not just that it's a false narrative. It's a false narrative that generates profit for media industries. And so I think this, this framework of kind of keeping the drama in the story, keeping the uncertainty in the story in order to drive engagement mm -hmm. and to drive outrage, this isn't a model that is ever going to work in survivors' favor. Yeah, and unfortunately, the media, you know, does dominate the, the narratives that are out there. And yet, at the same time, it, it's not in the same way like Twitter is not a good place to actually have a debate. Like the me mainstream media generally isn't either. I mean, the t number of times I've been invited to speak on Sky News where they pit me against a person who's kind of largely saying the men's rights activist, and I'm like, and we're giving like 30 seconds to say our thing, and then another contentious thing from the other side, and, yeah. and that's not actually a productive conversation. But you know, it, it's good TV viewing, right? So yeah. that kind of let's disguise the news as entertainment is comes at a great cost in terms of actually our understanding of these issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there is no both sidesism to sexual violence. Sexual violence doesn't have another side, you know, yeah. in that sense. It's not to say that it's not complex and the cases aren't complex, but um, we are out of time. I was, I'm trying to be a very good chair. Um, um, okay, I, I, yeah. Um, uh, so um, I would like to thank Rowena, Kat, Lucia, Winnie, for this incredibly fascinating and moving and brave, um, you know, panel. And uh, again, we will be um, in the back. We have there are books there if anyone is interested. If we want to continue conversations, we are happy to do so. But um, just please give a round of applause for our panel. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.